0: ATCO fam, Patrick here. Today, the Obsessed Network is launching season two of Crimes of the Centuries, and we are so excited. Crimes of the Centuries is the podcast from award-winning reporter Amber Hunt. Recently named by Rolling Stone as one of the top 10 best true crime podcasts of 2021, Crimes of the Centuries rediscovers the true crime stories that shocked the nation. Cases so unbelievable, we thought we'd never forget them, but somehow did. We're starting off the second season with an episode about the Cleveland torso murders when a series of headless torsos began appearing in that city. Who was behind these gruesome killings and would they be caught and brought to justice? So we're bringing you the first part of this episode here in this feed. To hear the rest, go find and follow Crimes of the Centuries wherever you get your podcasts. You will not be sorry that you did.
1: On a crisp fall morning, a Monday, in 1935, two young boys made a grisly discovery in Kingsbury Run, an area in southeast Cleveland, Ohio. The boys, ages 16 and 12, had been playing catch but lost control of the ball. To retrieve it, they ran down a hill affectionately called Jackass Hill and were stopped in their tracks by the sight of a man's body, naked except for socks. Also, He was missing a head and a penis, and his blood had been drained. The boys rushed home and told their parents what they had found. Their parents, naturally, alerted police. If police had been skeptical about the report, that doubt would have quickly been erased because they not only found the body, the boys had reported, but they found another mutilated corpse to boot.
2: Also decapitated, also emasculated. But this would have been there for quite some time, maybe as long as a month. But it was hidden in the sumac bushes, so no one would see it unless they were really on top of it.
1: This is James J. Badal, author of In the Wake of the Butcher.
2: They found the heads of both men buried in the dirt with just enough hair of one of them sticking above the surface to make sure the police would find them.
1: Two dead, emasculated, headless bodies found at one time was jarring enough But what officials couldn't have predicted at the time was that the discovery of these two men marked the first in the official tally of a serial killer to be dubbed the Cleveland Torso Murderer, a case that would forever haunt the town and the investigators who tried to solve it, including one of history's most famous and least touchable. If you type torso murders into the old Google machine, you might be surprised at just how many there have been over the years. In the 1920s, a spate hit Pennsylvania, some 15 victims attributed to a still unknown killer whose victims were as young as six. The series of killings stopped as mysteriously as they started. The next decade, another spate hit Cleveland, Some people, including one of the lead investigators in Cleveland, have wondered if the two series are connected. Ohio and Pennsylvania are neighbors, after all. But there's never been solid evidence linking the two. So today, we'll focus on the Buckeye State, where the terror began September 23, 1935, with the discovery of those two headless bodies.
2: The first man was identified as 29-year-old Edward Andrasi, who lived on Fulton Avenue with his parents. And he was what police in those days called a snotty punk.
1: Andrew C. had a sketchy record. He couldn't seem to hold down a job. Strangely, the one long-term job he did have was on again, off again, like a bad relationship. He'd been hired and then fired and then rehired 11 times total at a city hospital.
2: Where he worked as an orderly in the psycho ward interesting, isn't it?
1: Andresi had had a rough upbringing through no fault of his own or his immigrant parents. When he was 16 years old, his older brother Joseph had been killed at age 20 in a bar fight, after which Andresi seemed to struggle. His parents told reporters that they had tried to help him, tried to set him straight, but he told them to butt out.
2: He had been arrested any number of times for drinking and brawling. He was even known for sleeping off his drunks in cemeteries.
1: That history of legal run-ins likely helped keep him from dying in anonymity. Of the dozen victims officially attributed to today's killer, only two victims were ever officially identified. Even the man found with Andressey never got a name. Now Cleveland in the 30s was struggling with the Great Depression, as was much of the country but it was arguably doing better than most. It was, at this point, the sixth biggest city in the country and had successfully bid itself as a convention city. Its downtown had a new Union train station, fancy hotels, and a state-of-the-art auditorium. When the two bodies were discovered in the fall, the city was gearing up for an especially big summer. The Republican National Convention was being held there, as was the Great Lakes Exposition, a big old fair designed to celebrate Cleveland's centennial.
2: Cleveland, the state's largest city, flings its soaring towers into the blue Lake Erie sky. Built on Lake Erie's southern shores, today's Cleveland typifies America at its best.
1: Cleveland's population was straight-up booming, having grown 60% between 1910 and 1930. And a lot of that population stemmed from immigration. I mean, Some 25% of the city's 900,000 residents were foreign-born. Poland and Slovenia were biggies, as was Hungary, which is where Edward Andrusi's parents, Joseph and Helen, had been born. The two had traveled to the U.S. with their oldest child, John, in 1901. After they settled, they had four more children. Joseph Jr., the son later murdered in a bar fight, was born in 1902. Edward was the couple's second-to-last child and their youngest son. While an orderly at the hospital where he sometimes worked, Edward met a young woman named Lillian Kardotsky, a nurse. Marriage records showed the two wed November 12th, 1928. They had a daughter together, but had split up before the girl could even walk. By the 1930 census, Edward was back living with his folks, as did the two sisters who sandwiched him in age, Irene and Edna. Now, Edward's folks knew he was mixed up with some rough people They knew this because just two months before the murder of their second son, a man had shown up at their home threatening to kill Edward for, quote, paying attention, end quote, to the man's wife. Naturally, thinking that this visit might be related to Edward's death, they told police about the encounter after his body was found. In turn, Detective Sergeant Bernard Wolfe told reporters in a Wire story that ran in newspapers all over the country that Edward Andressee was likely the victim of a love triangle. I'm sure they saw the genital mutilation as support for this theory. They assumed that the man found with him was somehow connected to the tawdry affair as well. and Why else would their bodies have been dumped together? And because they never could figure out who that second man was? they had no reason to doubt the conclusion they'd reached. It was a sad affair, sure, but surely it wasn't random. Not that the police didn't legitimately search for the killer. They did. In fact, they went so far as to track down the guy who'd killed Joseph Andressey Jr. in 1922, 13 years before Edward's death. They held that man for a few days before springing him loose, satisfied that he hadn't harbored a deadly grudge against the family for more than a decade. A few weeks passed, then a few months, and this strange murder stopped making national news. Until January 1936, when pieces of a woman's body were found in burlap sacks behind a Cleveland factory. Thanks to her fingerprints and criminal record for sex work, Florence Polillo, alias Clara Dunn, alias Flo Martin, was quickly identified as the victim. She'd been dead a few days when her hips, thighs, pelvis, lower half of her torso, and her right arm were recovered. At this point, the city of Cleveland had a new safety director who had only been on the job about a month from a Crime Vault documentary.
2: Safety director Elliot Ness became heavily involved
1: If the name Elliot Ness sounds familiar, there's a reason. That's because years earlier...
2: Ness was well-known at the time for heading up The Untouchables, a group of federal law enforcement agents that worked to take down Al Capone, and it was believed that his savviness as a detective would bring fast closure to the case.
1: Spoiler alert, it didn't. And, in fact, it probably helped dim Ness's political star, though not his legacy. A few months after Florence Polillo's body parts were discovered, police fielded an anonymous tip in May 1936, insisting that a group called the Black Legion was responsible for the deaths. That was a secret organization dedicated to terrorizing people of color, Catholics, and Jews. The group was known as a more violent version of the Ku Klux Klan, which should tell you something. The month after that tip, a new body surfaced. This time, there was again a head, which authorities hoped would mean a fairly easy identification. But as with victim number two, that wasn't the case, which is admittedly surprising in this situation because not only did they have a head in good condition, hair still intact, tissue unaffected by decomposition, but this man had multiple tattoos, unique ones even. His left leg bore a cigar-chomping comic strip character called Jiggs. His right shoulder, a butterfly. Right outer arm, heart with a piercing arrow. Right inner forearm, crossed flags with the initials WCG. On his left arm were the names Helen and Paul beneath an image of a dove. He had everything short of my name is blank tattooed on his body. And even with all of those tattoos and an identifiable face, the man was never reunited with his name. He's known only as the Cleveland Torso Murderer's fourth victim, AKA the Tattooed Man.
0: Hey, fam, thanks for listening. To hear the full episode, go find and follow Crimes of the Centuries wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop every Monday.